Well, hello there. This is Jim Patton, your host for the MOH podcast. We're back here again with another Winky Tape. This is uh, next to the last one in this series that uh, I believe was recorded in 1979. Uh, it's a, a particularly um, interesting because it's talking about something that is only now uh, starting to be uh, mentioned and talked about in the church. Or even some some uh, some people aren't talking about it still in church, but it has to do with psychic technology. This is a very very uh, I don't know if you want to call it prescient, but Winky was was paying attention. He was way ahead of the curve on this one. And uh, so if you uh, if you've been listening, good. If not, you really need to go back and listen to the series from the beginning. Um, I'll I'll I think in the in the uh, description I'll tell you which ones that you need to listen to. But this is the the final one. Uh, no, I take it back, the final uh, topic, but it's two tapes. This one just kind of uh, kind of stops, and then the next one takes up, what we'll do, uh, which we'll be doing next week. Um, so here we're getting to the conclusion of what this was all about and uh, what to look for in the future, and now the future is here. So uh, let's go ahead and listen to Winky talk about part one of Psychic Technology. My wife and I leave tomorrow morning for Dallas for two or three days, and then going to Tulsa, Howard Roberts University, joined with Keith Green for a week there. Tony Salerno is coming in to help. And uh, we believe this, this year is going to be an exciting year, some very uh, big challenges, some thrilling opportunities. The Lord has opened uh, for the ministry and I value prayers. Tonight, for... Those of you who have come in, uh, perhaps for the first time, do we have anybody here for the first time this evening? Put your hands up. Okay, I'm sorry to have to lay this on you. Uh, your mind is probably going to be blown in 14 different directions this evening because we have put a good, well, perhaps eight hours of preparation into this evening's thing, and uh, we have traced the birth of a first uh, counterculture. We've talked about various needs that Jesus came to meet. And the one problem we have with uh, meetings like this is that uh, when people come in on the end, they wonder where in the world we're coming from. And I would strongly advise those of you who, who are here tonight for the first time, if you can get hold of the tapes that have gone before, it will make what we say tonight um, of a great deal more significance than we're just beginning. We have been looking at what I believe will be the final consciousness before Jesus returns to earth. It is a demonic synthesis. It is the result of over at least 2,000 years of philosophical fooling around by the devil. And uh, it is probably his finest synthesis. It is the strengths of all of the demonic philosophies of the past all married into one unit. And uh, I'm giving it a name, and tonight we're going to analyze this, and we will call it Psychic Technology. Now, there's a man by the name of Arthur C. Custance, and I have mentioned him briefly before. 
if uh, you want to get hold of a series of books that I think you would find astonishingly fresh and refreshing, strongly advise you pick up one or two at least by this man, Arthur C. Custance. Over a period of 15 years, he wrote a series of books called The Doorway Papers. And uh, they deal with some very, very interesting areas, areas that most people don't even ask questions on, let alone uh, come up with answers. But they are, they're most uh, unusual areas, and yet they're areas that people really do sometimes run into in terms of questions. Uh, Dr. Custance is a professional anthropologist. He has a PhD in anthropology. He also has a master's in Oriental languages, so he's a linguistics expert. And one of the services he's done for the body of Christ is to give us a study of the history of mankind in the light of the scriptures. And uh, one of his finest books, these books unfortunately cost about $8, they're hardback, uh, a whole series put out by Zondervan, perhaps 10 books in the series. So maybe uh, pray for Zondervan that they'll put them out in paperback. But I have a, a little base on buying books, and it goes like this, that for every 10 cents I spend on any book that goes into my library, there must be at least one mind-blowing principle in it. And if the book costs a dollar, there ought to be 10 in it. And if it's $10, there ought to be 100. So on the basis of that evaluation, these $8 books by Arthur C. Custance are worth about $5,000 each. So get hold of them. You can. I really think you like them. And what I want to do is give you just a little breakdown of uh, Custance's radical discoveries, beginning with the Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10, which he takes as any person who believes in the inspiration of scriptures as a literal statement. And uh, beginning from those 10, from those uh, Table of Nations in Genesis 10, he traces out the history of mankind anthropologically and linguistically right down to our present nations and comes to a startling conclusion that Noah's three sons each were given a task to contribute to the stream of humanity. And uh, it's so neat to find your roots. It really is. To find uh, your whole roots, where you come from and what your position in, in uh, history has been. And he comes to the conclusion that the sons of Shem were given fundamentally the task, and this is in a book called Noah's Three Sons, were given the task of revelation. And they were to take to the world a picture of God as a moral God, as a God who required moral changes, to bring to the world a picture of God as a God who is ethical, who is uh, a God who required uh, character of the people who followed him. And it's significant that the three main religious systems in the world, and this is not counting Hinduism as a religious system because it is fundamentally a religiously philosophical system. It is a system of philosophy rather than a system of moral and ethical change. Mentioned this morning that in Hinduism you do not have to change your moral character, you only have to understand something. So we will list it basically as a philosophical religious system rather than religion. The three major religious systems in the world, interestingly enough, all owe their roots to the Shemitic peoples. And that is uh, Judaism, which is Shemitic, uh, Islam, which is Shemitic, Muslim empires, and then Christianity. Now, 
Those of you in the in crowd know that Christianity is not a religion, but we just put it up here anyway. And then we come to the sons of Ham. Again, uh, Custon's discoveries here are very radically different from that of secular anthropologists. Uh, tra uh, classically and uh, in anthrop an anthropology, the Hermetic peoples have usually been traced to the Negroid population or the, the, uh, the black population, but Custon says that the Hermetic peoples are much, much broader than just the black population. It also includes such diverse people as the, the ancestors of the American Indians and also the Chinese. And he says that according to Genesis 10, the Hermetic peoples uh, diversified much more powerfully than any other uh, race on earth. And you've got these vast differences. And apparently what God did with the sons of Ham is he sent them out to conquer the most uh, impossible areas in the world. And they went to the most difficult, uh, barren, uh, super hot, super cold places, and using all existing things there in the territory, subjected their environment and solved their practical problems. And the surprising result that Custon comes up with, of which he has about 50 pages, called the uh, Hermetic Contributions to Technology, is this that the fundamental purpose of the sons of Ham was to provide technology for the world. This astonishing conclusion is that the vast majority of technology has not come from the Indo-European people at all, but the Hermetic peoples. And that you can directly trace back almost every basic principle and concept in technology to the Hermetic people. Uh, he shows, for instance, batteries of the Egyptians had electroplating, uh, he shows uh, uh, all kinds of things from truth serums and uh, uh, surgical instruments and enemas and uh, typewriting and um, printing presses and rockets and grenades and you name it. It all goes back to the Hermetic peoples. Some of the interesting things, for instance, this. How would you build uh, an, uh, an igloo? If you were an Eskimo, how would you build one? And here, say you get this barren wasteland like Antarctica or something, and all you got is ice and snow, and every now and then a polar bear goes flying along that can take your head off with one whip, and you got fish under the ice if you can get through it, and you got to go in there and live and conquer that environment. How would you do it? First, you got to build a house. What do you build it out of? Handy-dandy aluminum that you've imported from the U.S.? Well, one single Eskimo can build an igloo all on his own without having any help. You ever wondered how they build an, an igloo with all the round blocks and how they keep the top up from falling, not falling in? You ever wonder how they do that? You think they fill it up with snow and then dig it up afterwards, it goes solid. You ever wondered how they do that? Now, that may seem a simple little thing till you try to do it, but remember, somebody had to do it first and they had to come right up with the invention. Well, the Eskimos do a cool thing. They rest. That's kind of a heavy joke. <laughs> Just seeing how you're together here. What they do is they build each block resting on the other and they're built on a slant. So each block just lays on the other and it builds around in a spiral till the final one just fits in on top. And that's it. One person can build it. Got to the islands, again where the Hermetic peoples went, 
And uh, say you want to build a boat, and you want to put two pieces of wood together that are flat like this, and you want to bind them together so they're waterproof, so your boat doesn't leak. How do you do it? And you can look at that for a long time and say, I don't know how to do it. You nail it together, put a thing on. Here's how, here's how they do it. They take those two strips of wood, put them like this. They drill a hole through here, hole through there. They take two round pieces of wood and they bind those two round pieces just like that. And there is complex mathematical equation to explain this. The forces that are generated by those two round pieces of wood hold not only those two square pieces in perfect alignment, also waterproof it. Now they just did that, just boop. Later on, people come along and go, yes, well, of course, that's how you do it. Somebody had to come up with it first. And the Hermetic peoples did. And what uh, custom shows is that the gods of the Hermetic people have tended to be gods of power. And then finally, this is the greatest diversification, right through the world, conquering all territories, the Hermetic people spread. And then uh, finally, you come to the Japhetic peoples, of which uh, sons of Japhet, Indo-Europeans. And it seems like that the Japhetic people were given the task of illumination. And most of the great teaching systems of the world have come from the sons of Japhet. India, of course, fits in here. As a matter of fact, uh, India takes as their ancestors Yapetos. He's supposed to be the, the ancestor of the Indian peoples. And when we look at these three, there is a Bible order, and of course the gods of uh, Japhet have been gods basically of illumination. They've been gods who give you a revelation, or not revelation rather, but wisdom and enlightenment and illumination. What is interesting is that this order is always followed in Scripture. For instance, who were the first group of people who ever came to see Jesus when he was born? Who were the first group of people that knew that he was come? That's what we think, the wise men of the East, because we've seen the Christmas cards, don't we? We're standing around and uh, with a deodorized straw and, you know, spraying. Have another go. The shepherds out on the hill, they saw him when he was a baby. The wise men didn't see him until he was a child. That's what's interesting. But the shepherds, how did they know that Christ was born? By revelation. Sitting up in the hillside, washing their socks by night, as the old Christmas carol goes, the angel of the Lord came down, glory shone around them, they heard angels singing, hark the herald angels, and stuff like this. And they told him, you go, because there's born unto you this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the King. And they went and saw the baby lying in a manger. So the first ones who saw him, who came by revelation, were the Shemitic shepherds sitting up on the side of the hill. And then, some time later, as a matter of fact, it could be years later, the wise men from the east came, having studied technology men, people who, through study of, of the, the currents of history and through all of the sciences they had at their disposal, knew that some supernatural thing was taking place in earth and followed a star until finally the star led them to Bethlehem where the child was. And there they met Jesus as a child and gave him presents. 
And we see here the sons of Ham gathered around the child Christ, bringing him their worship. Until finally, it's not until Jesus is a young man, he's in the middle of his teaching ministry now, that the third and final group of people that are mentioned specifically in the New Testament are seeking out Jesus come. You remember who they were? Pastor Stiles. No. <laughs> Do you remember a certain group of people came seeking Christ at the feast? They were Greeks. And they, of course, were sons of Japheth. Those who had the great history of philosophy, they came seeking Christ. And there's an order in this. When Jesus was crucified, the moral responsibility was accepted by the sons of Shem, who said, His blood be on us and our children. The actual carrying out of the execution took place was by the Romans, sons of Japheth. And then in between, it almost looks like an incidental record, but it's not. The Holy Ghost puts it in in divine order. As Jesus is stumbling, you see, you know what technology is? Technology is the practical solution or the practical service. It is the solution of all practical problems. And what a neat thing, as Jesus stumbles carrying the cross, uh, a Roman uh, calls somebody out of a crowd to help Christ, and this man carries Christ's cross for him, comes and serves him. The man of power steps in and helps carry Christ's cross. And who is it? Simon of Cyrene, son of Ham, carries a cross for Christ. And then comes the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God is poured out, and it first comes to who? Bunch of Jews gathered together in the upper room waiting. It falls first on the sons of Shem. And then it goes to the Roman world, to Cornelius. And in between, again looking almost like an incidental thing. But not, not at all. Specifically by the Holy Ghost put in this order. It comes to a man out in the desert. A man that we mentioned the very first night we had here where uh, he was reading a scroll from the book of Isaiah. And uh, remember, the Ethiopian eunuch, again a son of Ham, man of great power in Africa, who came. Always this order. And we tried to point out this, that it seems like there is a divine order in God teaching us, that it comes by revelation, and then secondly, we practically obey him and serve him, and then thirdly, he explains to us, if he wants to, what he means. Now, let me show you one more thing. The study of this would be enough to, to excite us and think about this for a long, long time. But what uh, Custons points out is that when these, uh, when these different races have intermarried, sometimes by wars or conquest, sometimes by peaceful settlement, when these different streams have run together, the whole of humanity has taken giant steps forwards in creativity and in, in changing the world. And when revelation has come together with illumination, you have the one giant contribution to human history, which is called theology. You just want to think of how much the world was changed by the Reformation and by other religious uh, theological uh, impacts on the world. And uh, I think you can see how important that is. For instance, uh, you may not know this, but there's a book called 
The Anti-Slavery Impulse by Gilbert Hobbs Barnes. It's written by a man who uncovered some letters written uh, before the Civil War that gave an entirely new light on the cause of the Civil War. And it turns out that uh, the Civil War, and the reason why it happened, has many interpretations, and Marx's interpretation is another economic interpretation. But these letters reveal that the people behind getting Abraham Lincoln into power as president were converts in Charles Finney's revival. And though they were very quiet people, and they didn't speak a lot up in front, they were the men who financed Lincoln as president. And it comes down to this, that the Civil War came out of a theological statement that it was wrong to enslave people, to call uh, the whole black culture that was here uh, a subhuman thing. And the Emancipation Proclamation was started by a theological statement. And you can imagine the effect that had on this country came straight out of theology. You can understand the importance of theological statements. The illumination of revelationist theology. The second great contribution comes from another stream, and that is the illumination of technology. And when these two combine, you have the second giant step, which we call science. Now, science is not technology. A person can be technologically proficient and not be scientific at all. A technological person is like your handyman who can solve anything. You give him a problem, say, this thing doesn't work, he'll fix it up. A scientist may not even be able to drive a car, but he can explain how combustion engines work and give you the mathematics of it. Do you understand the difference? Technology is a practical thing. It is the solving of problems in a very practical way. But what we're looking at and what gave us the modern scientific world is the illumination of technology, the study of how those practical problems were solved and the putting them into equations and the thought forms, and out of that came the whole of our modern industrial world. Now, here are two gigantic combinations. Can you see on the board a third mixture, a third alternative? The only third. Only one left. The combination of revelation and technology. Now, I believe there is a Christian alternative to psychic technology. But what we are witnessing in our day is a demonic marriage of technology and revelation into a mystical and yet scientific or technological marriage that is going to be the most dominant force in all of the world. It's already uniting most of the Western world, and very soon it'll pick up all of the rest of the Eastern world. I'm talking about across the barriers of the Iron Curtains and the Bamboo Curtains. This is the dominant theme that's bringing them together. I believe there's a Christian alternative. I believe the Christian of the future, and Barry Maguire was going to put out an album like this, and he never got around to doing it, and I think he should have. He should have had a Christian soldier, instead of dressed in a clanking old medieval you know, we have the Christian soldier. Here he comes, clanking in armor, clank, clank, puts up his shield of, you know, and his sword of <laughs> truth and stuff. You know what I'd love to do? I'd love to see a soldier of the future and have a lightsaber in his hand for a sword of truth. I believe that what God has in mind is a new kind of Christian, a Christian who is a master of practical service and technology and who is deeply spiritual at the same time. And I believe that kind of person is a person who will speak to today's culture. And I believe it's going to come. 
you see, uh, you remember how the, it all started, started in the garden. Remember Woodstock? We are stardust, we are golden, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. God isn't going back to no garden, he started there. He's going forwards. And where does it end? We cheated, we read the end of the book. Where does it end? In a city, a marvel of technology and ecology and beauty and spirituality, all married together. God isn't going back to some little humdrum garden out in the woods with a few flowers around. There are animals and trees and beauty and city and the whole thing. What man has never been able to accomplish here on earth, he is going to do. He is going to put together a city, a city like you would never believe. I worked out the dimensions of that city, and it's big enough for every city that has ever existed and a few more besides. There is room in that city for you if you want to be part of it. We are now going to look at the demonic counterfeit of the marriage of revelation and technology. This is such a critical area. But to understand this before it comes down is to give you a handle on witnessing to the world in which you live. And then, here is a couple more quotes from Theodor Rojak in his book, Unfinished Animal. Lewis Mumford tells us that in every historical era there are dominant themes and emergent themes. In our time, the dominant themes are science, secular humanism, global industrialism, and social revolution. But the emergent theme of the age has been sounded, I believe, by those who begin to see themselves as unfinished animals, summoned to unfold astonishing possibilities. For all the seeming irrelevance and perversity of their style, those who step to the Aquarian tempo of life may sense with a unique vividness that our much-endangered interval in history demands more of us than mere survival, as much as that might be to ask, more than social revolution, as necessary as that might be. It demands a regeneration of life at some finer, more vibrant level of being, a qualitative leap forward of the species whose outcome we can only fantastically prefigure by outlandish assertions of the strange and awesome. And then he says, we may stand on the threshold of a grand transformation, but there is no guarantee we will make our way across. For we may be, after all, but a failed species, doomed despite the example of the great masters who have walked, worked among us to bungle the opportunity at hand. If we do indeed confront the choice before us as free spirits in the universe, then we are as free to lose as to win. Now, I want to give you a couple of uh, quotes. Would you write the scripture down, please? Second Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy 3 and verses 1. Second Timothy 3, verse 1, and then Second Timothy 4, verses 3 to 4. I'm going to read this out to you. Here's the Holy Spirit through Paul to the young man Timothy. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned to fables. Probably no Christian writer 
that I know of has seen the danger of this forthcoming consciousness any more clearly than the late C.S. Lewis. And uh, I want to take you just briefly back in history. Many, many thousands of years ago, mankind began on a great exploration. They commenced the building of a monolith, a structure that was more than a simple building, a structure that involved geometric uh, design. Some of you have heard about pyramids and power and stuff like this. This thing was, uh, was the ultimate outcome of all occult and mystical sciences combined with technology of their day. That structure was called the Tower of Babel. It was not just a simple stone tower designed to make a few steps up into the air and perhaps go into outer space. They weren't that dumb. What it was, it seems, from our study of both secular history and from the scriptures, it was an occult construct, an architecturally designed system which was supposed to give a clue to how God put the universe together. And if finished, they could have cracked the secrets of how the universe was put together. It was so dangerous that it required direct intervention by God into human history. And the scriptures record that the scattering of all nations took place at this time. God came down and said they have combined together. Nothing will be restrained from them to do what they want to do. Selfishness is about to invade the heart of the universe. And God came down and suddenly everybody spoke different languages. You can imagine... You're asking a guy, you say to this girl, pass me the brick, and it goes, hi, old horse, aha! And she goes, ah, to you, to ah! And kills you because you don't know what you just asked. And suddenly there's mass confusion. Nobody's talking what anybody else is talking. And you've got to huddle up in little groups and say, who to? Mahita, And they both, see? Total confusion. He scattered the languages. What we are witnessing in our day is the rebuilding of that tower again. And I believe it will call down exactly the same divine judgment. But this time will be for keeps. And listen to C.S. Lewis's words. A wild book. You want to get a hold of this and read it sometime? C.S. Lewis, That Hideous Strength, written in 1945. And That Hideous Strength is a statement of psychic technology. In it, there's a group called NICE, N-I-C-E, that are anything but. And the guy who runs NICE is a disembodied head, which is kept alive by technology. The guy is dead, his head is cut off, sitting on top of a box, there's all these tubes in there keeping it alive, and the voice that opens and speaks out of this head is not the voice of the guy who died. There's an incredible parable. Technology and the alcohol are married together. And in it, it, it creates a rebellion. The animals turn against it, and, and uh, heaven comes in and intervenes. And in this funny little science fiction story, that hideous strength, this statement is made. The soul has gone out of the wood and the water, for that hideous strength confronts us. And it is as the days when Nimrod built a tower to reach unto heaven. All right? That's that. Now let me give you another one. This one is taken from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. The letters of one devil to another. Senior devil to a junior devil. 
And here's what the devil says. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. At least, not yet. I have great hopes that in time we shall learn to emotionalize and mythologize their sciences to such an extent that what is in effect a belief in us, though not under that name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to belief in the enemy. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshipping what he vaguely calls forces, while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. And you live in that day. The man that is looked for today, this materialist magician, is the hero of the psychic technological age. Why do you think Superman is so popular? Superman is one of many heroes that embody this whole concept, not a particularly religious person. The power he has comes from technology, from advanced technology, not from the supernatural. And yet there's always that worship thing that comes into it. And it's just lucky for you that Superman doesn't lie, Lois, because... <laughs> If he did, he'd sure rip off a lot of people. What is this materialist magician like? And how did we get to this place? Before we look at this whole phenomenon, I want to give you a little bit on the changing role of evolutionary theory. About 105 to 110 years ago, man was born by the name... And, uh, well, it'll be a little earlier than that. Man came into existence by the name of Charlie Darwin. Charlie Darwin, backslidden son of a minister. It always seems to be people like that, get people into trouble. Can you give me that folder from off the top of the, that white folder? Yeah, whip me that folder. See if I got it in here. hope I got it in here. Here it is. Glory. I have out in my case a little thing called a Hewlett Packard 978 digital multimeter. Thing looks like an electric toothbrush, and it uh, looks like it fell out of Star Trek. You've never seen anything like this. It's a little unit like this, switch it on, measure everything down to 100 microvolts, and automatically auto range up to 500 volts. If Pastor, uh, Pastor here and I shook hands, it would measure the resistance between us and our shoes and the floor. You can, you can do all kinds of trippy things. It's only a little unit. And just 25 years ago, the same thing would take about half the size of that pulpit and, and run. When you switched it on, all the lights in your house would dim. Now, what has happened today is this. If, I, if you saw that thing, or how, has anybody got a calculator on you here tonight? Anybody got a calculator? Can you pass it over here? Uh, what is it? Just uh, that'll do. Give me that thing. 
Now, this is a beautiful little goodie. See, it's a Lloyd's liquid crystal. Guaranteed to last two years. If you're wandering down the road in the 17th century, leading your donkey, and you came cluttering along and kicked into this, and you picked it up, and you started fooling around with it, you would notice two things. Number one, somebody built this thing. That's a simple concept. It call, it's called design equals designer. Right? That's the first thing. You don't have to, anybody prove you that. You go, oh, The second thing you'd know about it is this. Whoever built this is a lot smarter than you were. Right? That's called content of design equals intelligence of designer. Now, for many, many years in history, everybody believed that. You can go to ordinary people out in the jungles and the boondocks anywhere in the world, and you found that simple thing. Design equals designer and... Content of design shows you intelligence of designer. And up to about 130 years ago, everybody and their uncle used that as a demonstration of the wisdom and the glory of God. You took one look at man, you took a look at his universe, you said, this is designed, therefore the designer is really intelligent. Look how beautiful it is, how powerful it is, how wise. Think how wonderful God is. That was taught in schools up to 100 years ago. As a matter of fact, as far ago as 60 years, that same textbook was used to teach schools about the character and nature of God. And then along came Charlie Farquhar Darwin. He came up with a very interesting theory. His concept was perhaps design does not equal designer at all. Perhaps design comes from time and chance and matter. Maybe time, given enough time and enough chance, and matter, why, given enough time, perhaps it gives you the appearance of design. Now, he didn't start off like that. He talked about God creating things by uh, evolutionary process, and then only as he got on a little bit later and more backslidden that he say, well, we could even forget God. Perhaps we could do this. Now, the interesting thing about his theory is that the time took millions of years, and the chance took billions of variations, and you, you didn't, it didn't matter where matter came from. You just assumed it. Okay? So given those three things, the interesting thing about this novel theory is that nobody could wait long enough to see if it was true. Makes it very easy to prove. So that's the way it came, and uh, you know, we haven't got time to see it, but that's the way it probably was. And so for a hundred and so years it stood. It's a wonderful way to uh, create an apologetic. As a matter of fact, most Science has been built on it, has said that way. Yes, well, we don't know all the answers, but that's probably the way it is. We just haven't had time. Now, why have I talked about calculators, and why have I mentioned all of this stuff about HP 978s? Well, Darwin was only nine years old when the battery was invented. I want to show you how long ago he lived, because some of you think he was, you know, sort of just 20 years ago or so. Darwin was nine years old when the battery was invented. He was... 71, when Edison perfected the electric light bulb. 
He had been dead 25 years when the first vacuum tube was made. He had been dead 66 years before the transistor was invented. And now it is over 97 years later, we live on the brink in which you can have a computer in your own home. And many people do. In 1944, a man called Aiken and a little company called IBM made the first electric calculator. It was called the Harvard Mark I. It was 50 foot long, it was 8 foot high, and it could multiply, add, divide, and subtract. <laughs> Two years later, ENIAC was built. ENIAC was a hundred times faster. It could do a nuclear physics calculation that would take a hundred engineers working full-time a full year to do in just two hours. But ENIAC weighed 30 tons, used 18,000 tubes, and cost half a million dollars to build. This little thing, or something similar to it, could beat the cheese out of it. Now you can buy, that was 33, 34, 35 years ago. The new computers work thousands of times faster. There is now the possibility of processing some 10 billion pieces of information every second by the new fourth, fourth generation computers. New chips like the Zilog 80, the Z80 chip, are 20 times faster than ENIAC and 20 times more powerful, and you can buy them. They take less than a quarter square inch of silicon to build, and they cost below 10 bucks in quality, quantity. Now, why are they giving you all of this? Because for the first time, we can do something that Dawa never, ever thought we could do. We can compress time with computers. We can shrink millions of years into a period of one week. We can shrink billions of random variations into one single iteration. We can run in one week what nobody ever thought would be found out for millions of years. And we have been doing it. And the interesting thing is, it has not been working. And right now, there is a big war between the cyberneticists, the people who run the computers, and many of the biologists. And the war goes something like this. You give us the right stuff, and we'll prove it in the computers. So give it to us. And the others are saying stuff like, shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> In the last conference on life, it was mutually agreed not to discuss the origins of life. It was too controversial. Wisdom of the world did not know God. In other words, when programmed, this is running towards randomness. There seems to be no inherent tendency towards order, as Darwin hoped there would. So isn't it nice you live in an electronic age? Now... What has this done to evolutionary theory? Well, I'll tell you what it's done. It has driven us away from the concept of time and chance, unless you get into ridiculous periods of time, eons of time in which anything is statistically possible, it has driven us completely away from that. What it has done instead is to bring us back to an old, old theory, probably the most outlandish one, but it is currently the most popular one of how life got here. You'll see this theory in the opening of Battlestar Galactica every Sunday. There are some who believe that life here began, actually, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. And this is the point. 
We do not have enough time, as we know, uh, even within all the billions of variations, because of the complexity of man, for life to arise by accident on earth. And so the new theory has come like this. Maybe life did not arise here within our time span, because the earth is too young. Maybe life arose actually on another galaxy and was imported here. Or, alternately, maybe life was created here by beings who were smarter than us, with more power than us, and more intelligence than us, and perhaps, and this is the more wild way out, people, perhaps we are part of an interstellar seeding experiment. Perhaps mankind has been placed here, and the people who first planted the zoo or the garden many years ago are coming back to check on their experiment. Now, that's the more way out theory at the moment. The more, the more ordinary one would be uh, characterized by men like Carl Sagan, who is a highly respected astrophysicist and a man who is a very popular writer. And this is what Carl Sagan says. Cyclopedia Britannica, 1978. Science in the Future, the extra little book that comes with the Britannica Three System. This is his article. It's called The Search for Extraterrestrial Life. A number of astronomers think it plausible that radio signals from extraterrestrial intelligences will contain an astonishingly rich array of readily decodable information on the physical sciences and technology and possibly even some advice for avoiding the more common means of self-destruction. The receipt of a message from an extraterrestrial civilization would in the deepest sense deprovincialize mankind. The first attempts to detect such civilizations are underway, and it seems likely that a worldwide investigation of this problem will be mustered in the coming years. Now what he's saying is this. Right now across the world, behind all curtains, iron curtain, you know, there is a search for extraterrestrial life. Because, you've got to understand it, if there is nobody smarter than us up there, if there's nobody who has more power than us up there, if there's nobody, hopefully, who loves us up there, then we're finished here on Earth. We'll probably kill ourselves in the next 20 years. This is von Däniken's premise. I believe that the Earth shows evidence of beings smarter than us who have been here before us, who still intervene in human history. Well, I believe that. I do. So when I sit down and talk with people, they go, have you ever read any of Eric von Däniken's stuff? And I don't go, oh, yeah. I don't do that. I say, yeah, I have. And they go, oh, what do you think of it? And I go, well, his facts are a little weak, but his premise is true. What is that? They say, well, his premise is that the earth shows evidence of beings much smarter than us who have been here before and may still visit. What do you think of that? They say, I say, I know who they are. <laughs> they go, what? And I say, well, you know, I wouldn't tell you this except you seem interested. But I've been doing very careful research on this subject, and I've discovered something incredible. Not only is there real evidence that there are beings here a lot smarter than us, 
But I've found, and this is one of the reasons why there's so much contradictory information about this, that there are actually two lots of them, and one lot of goodies and one lot of baddies. Really, you think? <laughs> yeah, I say. And not only that, I'm going to tell you something that I never thought I'd tell you. I have joined one of the sides. <laughs> See? Now this is called getting somebody's attention. <laughs> and the neat thing is now, I have so much fun with unsafe people. You know, it's really fun. They're up all night. Really? What next? And I'm taking them out to cosmic adventures they never believed possible because I know God. I know what he's got in mind for the universe. And I'm on his side. It is so fun to be saved. I get in a plane, I carry my briefcase, everybody thinks I'm a, you know, some kind of, uh, uh, you know, businessman or something, and I carry this old battered briefcase, and I sit there, and they all give out all their, you know, their little plans to take over the world by the time they're 35, and they're working out all of their stuff, writing away, you know, looking here, perhaps he's one of us, you know, writing. They don't know they just sat next door to a representative of a king from another world. They don't know that. They think I'm just a normal, old, ordinary earth person, see? I don't know, I'm just a stranger and a pilgrim. I don't even belong here. I'm just passing through. I'm not really at home in any one of these places. And uh, they, I close my eyes. They think I'm asleep. They don't know I'm communicating with my king in a language not, nobody can crack. See, they don't know that. They just think I'm an ordinary old dude sitting there. Then we go through a storm like this, and it's a guy's first flight, and he goes, oh, this is pretty rough. And I say, yeah, we could die. We could probably all crash, but don't worry. I'm on the plane. It won't happen. It'll be all right. <laughs> We're going to like this. And I said, it doesn't matter. If I go down, I'll go straight back up again. It's uh... <laughs> I have so much fun being saved. You see, unless you deal with that underlying... I want to give you a little, uh, give you a little parable here. This is taken from one of Francis Schaeffer's tapes. There is a Swedish rock opera. It's in Swedish, being Swedish. And uh, its plot is very simple. Uh, like the De Jefferson Starship, a group of kids have stolen, hijacked, the first faster-than-light rocket ship. It's what the Jefferson Starship always said they were going to do, rip off the first faster-than-light. Anybody want to join? What they're going to do is leave rotten old Earth behind. They're going to take off to another universe, maybe another star, and, and maybe find some more planets there like Earth and start all over again, leave all this crud behind. And uh, so they fire off from Earth before they go into warp drive. Mr. Sulu, how is it? Fine, Captain. <laughs> they leave this behind. They're all dancing and singing, and there's music coming through from speakers being broadcast from Earth. Well, the music sounds like this. Which is a mess. That's why they're leaving. See? They go on singing and stuff. And in the middle of all of this singing, suddenly there's a brilliant light that lights up right through the portholes, the whole of the inside of the ship. And that light gets brighter and brighter and brighter. It goes up to blue whiteness, and then it dies away and becomes red yellow, and then you hear over the speakers this ominous sound, and then silence. You know what happened? 
Some idiot back home pushed the button. Now understand, this is a modern flight. There is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no life after death, there is nothing. Everybody back home, your parents, your relatives, your record collection, <coughs> gone. Dust and ashes, nothing left. Didn't go to heaven, didn't go to hell. Just went back into molecule. That's it. Now imagine that you're in this ship and look around you. This is all that is left of the human race. Outside, there is nothing. There's no freeway, there's no traffic, there's no homes, there's no houses, there's no lands, there's no nations, there's no continent, there is no earth. It is gone, it is gone for good. And that incredible cosmic accident we call man has been absolutely destroyed and eradicated with the exception of the people in this room. Take a look around you, you are the future of the universe. Isn't it a bit scary? Well, I keep on singing, but not so bravely. Because if they don't make it, that's it, it's finished. And then the captain comes back from the front of the ship, it's right near the end of the flight, and he is not singing and he's not smiling. And he says, the blast has destroyed our guidance systems. We are spinning out of control. We are heading into the sun. This is the end of the human race. And the curtain comes down and that's the end of the play and you all go home. Now, how do you feel? Well, that's how every kid felt in the 1960s when they began to understand what it meant to be a machine. And you got to understand, if we blow up this planet, we're gone, we're finished. It's supposed to be an accidental. It's supposed to be a whole product of a fantastic series of coincidences. And if we lose it, we haven't just lost something, we've lost everything. All of mankind is gone and gone forever. And not gone to hell or heaven, just gone, gone. And you better give something to people who come and say, hey, do you think there are beings smarter than us up there that may come down? You better give them more than say, no, I don't believe in it. It's kind of done. I believe there is a being smarter than us, much smarter than us. I believe there's somebody who loves man. And I believe there are aliens too, but unfortunately they don't come from outer space. They come from inner space. And tonight I'm going to show you how psychic technology has introduced the world to the UFO experience. And I want to show you just a little glimpse, I believe, of what is happening in the supernatural world. I have a poem that I put in my science fiction novel. It's taken from John Davidson. Uh, I think it's called 20 Bob a Week or something. And this is what one clip of this poem says. I ain't blaspheming, Mr. Silvertongue. I'm saying things a bit beyond your art. With your science and your books and your theories about spooks, did you ever think of looking in your heart? Now, I've studied science fiction since I was about nine years old. I started reading it, and I've noticed an interesting change concerning the aliens. Back in the War of the Worlds days, H.G. Wells, you remember War of the Worlds? Just come out now in a movie, in a uh, film, in a record presentation. War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells was made into a radio play. And in it, the Martians came. They're always Martians for some reason. The Martians came, and they landed outside in a field outside New Jersey. And what they did is they made a radio broadcast of it, saying we're now going to introduce a dramatized version of War of the Worlds. Only trouble, most people came in, like those of you who have come in late 
uh, to these sessions. They missed all the front part, and they didn't know it was a radio play. They turned their radio on, and all they heard was the normal broadcast-sounding thing, and every now and then an interruption from a commentator who said, some strange things are happening in a field right outside of New Jersey. Some lights recently were seen in the sky, and it seemed like a meteor shower. Something hit the ground. There were great explosions there, and we've sent out in reporters to investigate. Now back to our program. Da -da, da -da, da -da, da -da. We interrupt this broadcast again from, to bring you an on-the-spot report from our reporter who's out there. Now we're over here, we're looking at this thing. It seems like the media's all right. Wait a minute, the top is unscrewing. Is it possible there's something in there alive? What is that thing? Ah! <laughs> See? Now you're listening, man. You got your radio on. You've turned it on, you've given the kids their peanut butter and jello sandwiches, and you're about to pack them away for the night, and you're listening to this, you don't know it's a play, suddenly you hear that these things climbing out on sticks out of that field in New Jersey, and they're moving across, destroying everything as they came, and 10,000 people rushed out of their houses and began to trample across the bridge, killing many people as they ran. And it was officially banned from the radio. It was never to be played again. War of the world. Radio dramatization. Now I'll tell you something about the aliens. You knew one thing about aliens. If they were coming to, to Earth, it was to rape and to destroy and to take over the world. But things have changed in science fiction. For a long time, people had these ugly aliens and then they went to another alien. We have met the Martians and they are us. They said, we're the aliens, we're the ugly people. Look what we've done to the planet. Look what we've done by our technology. We're the aliens, we're the Martian, like this, hey? right? And now we come to the third stage. We are beginning to miss the Martians. Wish they were here, wish they could help us out. We're really in a mess. And after all, why should we project all our lusts and our greed and our fantasies on beings of other civilizations? If they were smart enough to conquer space, surely they'd be smart enough to solve the basic moral problems we haven't been able to solve. We need the aliens. If only they'll come and help us. And they better come quickly, because we're going to kill ourselves. And that, friends, is the present status of aliens. Now I'm going to give you a picture of the supernatural world from the point of view of Scripture. Hope your head doesn't blow to bits tonight. Well, here we go. Boldly, when no man has gone before. According to the scripture, there are actually at least three levels of reality. The bottom level, the world in which we live, is a world of time, of space, and what we call matter, which is simply motion. Energy and motion expressed in various phenomena, which we call light, sound, matter, all of these things. According to the Bible, this level, which we call third level, is actually the least solid, the least, uh, well, the least, what can we call This is more shadow. The next step up is more substance. This one we will call the created physical universe. The scriptures tell us that this whole created physical universe, turn please in your Bibles, the book of Philippians, 
Now, let's go to Colossians. I'll uh, give you this. This. Uh, give, get in that pack, Graham. Thank you for the loan. Colossians, please. Book of Colossians. What we need is big, heavy, systematic theologies on the nature of God because it should blow us apart. Colossians chapter 1, we have this scripture. Verse 15, speaking about Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the original bringer forth of all creation. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible. There are at least two different levels of reality. One is visible, one is invisible. And these are created realities. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And verse 17, he is before all things and by him all things hold together. Now, Graham was mentioning to me a little concept about the quantumization of time, but let me just put simply this. Science tells us it is possible that two worlds could coexist. Each world equally real with its flowers, trees, and people. Each world occupying the same space at the same moment of time. If you only threw, let's say, you threw the frequencies of vibration out of sync with each other, it should be possible for these two worlds to freely pass through the other world without either world being aware of the other one's existence. In other words, if I was out of sync with this blackboard, I could walk right on through it. It would be solid, and so would I, but I'd pass right on through as if it wasn't there. Just like when Snoopy fights the Red Baron, and he shoots, and is You ever wondered why he doesn't shoot his propellers off? Comes in, and he's firing, because they put him out of sync. So the propeller goes, boom, 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 like this. If it ever gets in sync, you lose your propellers. Goodbye, Snoopy. <laughs> Our universe, we're in sync with. I'm in sync with it. I try to walk through that board, I get a flat nose. They have a series, what they call bloopers on Star Trek, which every Star Trek convention I like running. And that is all of the offcuts from Star Trek. See, in Star Trek, any of you ever watched it, when Captain Kirk and then they walk out through the door, it always goes, Whoop! just as they open, and they walk through it. But sometimes the door fails to open. They've got to cut that out of the series, because you get, Whoop! Oh! You know, and it's really hilarious. They have a whole string of about 30 of these in a row. And uh, now, science tells us that your body is not solid. It's just really a collection of motion. Energy packets held together, and we don't even know the force that holds it together. Some people call it the Colossians force because of the scripture you just read. And that's maybe that was Robert Millikan, the spiritual Christian who measured the charge on the electron, who was not only a scientist, but a godly man. Now, we know that this world was created by God, and we tend to think this is the most solid world. But our science today tells us that you're not really solid. What you're doing, you've got a collision of energies that's holding you on that seat there. Not two solid things in contact, but a collision of energies. Matter of fact, most of us is empty space, and a lot of times our minds are too. <laughs> we go to the second level. We come to a universe the secular humanist does not believe in, but is still there. 
That world we will call the created spiritual world. And in the Bible, this world is very real. It intermeshes with our world, but it has higher levels of dimension, of motion, and of space. Now, that created spiritual world has two distinct divisions that have taken place. One is angelic, populated by beings of various levels that serve God. And then there is a demonic world. Some of you, I'm afraid, have very Mickey Mouse pictures of the angelic and the demonic. If I say angel to you, you think of a small being dressed in pampers with a bow-shaped bow flying around shooting people on St. Valentine's Day. It's a very weird picture of angels. Let me give you one description from the Bible of angels. Could you turn to the book of Acts, please? We gave this in last days, a couple of days ago, so I'm going to give it to you again. This thing like, reads like something out of Star Wars, man. It's the most astonishing thing. You think the angels are old-fashioned? They're more together than tomorrow. Book of Acts, and let me give you a chapter. Turn to chapter 12 of the book of Acts. Give you a little background. Peter has been put in prison because he's preached the gospel. They don't like that. They intend to bring him out, perhaps crucify him, just like Jesus was the year before. And the scriptures tell us, Herod, the king, stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. And when he had caught him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him. That's about right for one man of God, 16 soldiers against one, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains. Check the picture. Maximum security prison in Jerusalem. He is bound between two soldiers with chains, 16 soldiers outside, all of the gates guarded and locked, Peter in the middle of that mess, and all is going on is prayer for him. This is called impossible situation. What happens then? Not your average little fluttery being with pampers, shooting things. You read it. Your hair ought to stand on end. Here's how it goes. Behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in prison. And he smote Peter on the side. Boom. This is called reality. Not your feathery little pat from a pampers baby. Boom. Oh. And he got it, said, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. <laughs> and the angel said, put your clothes on, put your shoes on. And so he did. What happened to those two soldiers? <laughs> Time freeze. <laughs> and he said, put your coat around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he didn't know that it was true that was done by the angel. He thought he saw a vision. He thought, man, this is a far-out vision, man. I'm taken out. And when they were past the first and second ward, they came to the iron gate that lead, leads into the city. Check out this gate. 
which opened to them of his own accord. An angel, forget it, Charlie. <laughs> and they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith <laughs> the angel departed from him. And there's Peter standing in the middle of the street, slapping himself, saying, this is a wild dream. I wish I could wake up. I wish I could wake up. And he's out. Now, these beings, you ever run into one in a dark night, you will change your pampas theory very fast. <laughs> one single angel took out an entire regiment. Remember the time when Elisha's there with his Bible college servant and the king over on the rotten side of the hill sends over a whole army to pick up the prophet and the Bible college student looks out and he sees all the dust as the chariots come thundering down to pick up the prophet. And he goes, ah, what is that? And the prophet says, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you, they're all coming to kill us. And he says, oh, you know, I'm too young to die. And Elijah says, don't be afraid, there's more with us than they are with them. And he's counting the dog, the cat, him, Elijah. He's saying... You know, what do you mean? More with, there's hundreds of them out there. And, and Elijah says, Lord, open his eyes. And I know what that little kid is thinking just a second before he gets a glimpse into that second world. He's thinking, what? Oh, open my eyes. My, nothing wrong with my eyes, old man. I can see those sharp spikes on the edge of their chariot wheels and the spears that they're going to stick through my gizzard. Nothing wrong with my eyes, I can see very well. You need your eyes open. Count how many of those dudes are out there. And suddenly God opens his eyes and he sees another world that is all around us every single day. And you walk through that world every day and you don't usually know what's there. And he sees all of the hills ringed with angels with drawn lightsabers waiting for one single word from the prophet. You let us know and we'll do it. And up comes the thing, dun, 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 we get them, and then boom, they're all blind, running into each other, boom, boom, crunch, big melee, and finally up comes the prophet, hi boys, can I help? Oh, we all go blind for some reason, we wish we knew where we could go, well, I'll take you, takes him right and delivers him to the king, says, here's the opposing army, what should we do with him? <laughs> king goes, shall I beat him, shall I kill him, shall I kill him? No, 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 send him back. Yawn. Do you understand how powerful this army is? When people go out on missions, they run into the presence of angels. There is countless story after story after story of these beings who appear, reappear. They're not fairy stories. They're not myths. They're here. They're real. And there's two-thirds more goodies than there are baddies, and you better remember that. Isn't that fun? Amen. Glory. Well... What I want to give you here is this. Ultimately, there is a first level reality, and this is the being of God himself. Uncreated spirit. And that's absolutely unlike the rest of his creation. Now, what I want to show you is this. God has more. He's more solid than us. He has more space than us. He has more time than us. He can do things with us that we can't do. Let me just show you from this second level down what they can do with your space. I'll take um, 
I'll just take space as an example. I'm going to draw here on the board a two-dimensional man as an illustration. He's like something out of the twilight zone. There he is, two-dimensional man. Now, this man only exists on the blackboard. He has length, and he has height, but he has no thickness. You purists must ignore the thickness of the chalk. This man only exists on this blackboard. He has no concept of out here. He doesn't know there's about 100 people looking at him now. He's stuck on that blackboard. See? Now, I'm going to do some things to that man on the blackboard he cannot believe. I'm going to, first of all, create a bird. <laughs> At this point, he blows his mind. Where did that bird come from? Now, he saw it appear in length and in height, but he doesn't know how it came there. It didn't come from the side of the blackboard. It just seemed to be there. Now I'm going to do something else. Ta-da! Ta-da! He's gone crazy now. They're about to ship him off to the two-dimensional funny fun. He has no idea what is happening. Watch what else I can do. I can give this man a headache without going through his skin. I can give him a heart attack. Ah! But I didn't even go through his skin. Because I have one dimension up from him. I can do things in his dimensionality that he can't understand. Now, when I touch his dimensionality, he can see me, but only part. When I touch that board, he knows I'm there, but this is all he sees. See? I can take my hand off and I'm gone. And what happened to me? As a matter of fact, I could even build another man just like him right here. This man's blowing his mind because he doesn't know how he got there. He's freaking out because he doesn't know who this guy is. <laughs> now watch what I can do. I'm going to build a wall between them. Now they can't see each other. <laughs> now I'm going to do something. They're both yelling to each other. Hey, Jack, what's happening? I don't know, man. This is a close encounter of the ultimate kind. Now I'm going to touch them both without going through the wall. No way they can explain that. All I am is one dimension up. I'm three-dimensional, they're two. I'm one up, so I can do all kinds of things with their space that they can't possibly conceive. Now do you understand what happens in the supernatural world? It co-impacts it co with our world. And that supernatural world you actually belong to. You have a spirit that inhabits that supernatural world. But that is not the ultimate world. There is one higher, and that is God himself who created all of this. And to plug into him is to have power over all worlds. That is the secret of the Christian gospel. The man who knows the Bible God, the woman who knows the Bible God, who has given their heart and life to Jesus Christ to follow is transcendentally powerful over all of those worlds. To know that and to take authority in it is to go where demons fear the tree. What is the UFO phenomenon? What are we witnessing in this strange phenomenon called the UFO? 
I believe we are witnessing what we could call a demonic conditioning. First, I do not believe the UFOs come from outer space. They have never been, ever, recorded entering into Earth's atmosphere. I believe instead they may come from inner space. They come from right here. One of the strange characteristics of the UFOs is that though they take on certain basic shapes, no UFO has ever been seen exactly like another one. And that sure doesn't speak about mass production, does it? Each one, as a matter of fact, even seems to alter its characteristics depending on who is watching it. And that's very interesting. And people who have watched them or seen them have overwhelmingly come to this conclusion. It was less like a machine and more like a thing. It was alive. And I believe what you're witnessing is what we could call a paraphysical phenomenon. It uses some characteristics of our physical universe, but there are other things that do not fit into any of our observed mechanical or physical laws. I believe what you're watching is a manifestation from the supernatural world into our world. And its purpose is to precondition people for one single purpose, to raise curiosity as to who they are. That's it. Now, our time is going. I want to give you I should tell you about Uri Geller and people like him, but I don't think I will. I'll just say that what people are looking for today, and you'll see it in movies like The Fury and others, like Carrie, is a new breed of people who have developed potentialities uh, of power to manipulate matter or manipulate space or time by psychic force. And the people who lead this exploration are the Soviet Union, the United States, Great Britain, and East and West Germany. The major powers of the West are the people who lead this exploration. Soviet Union has a gigantic military budget on psychic exploration. And every year there is more and more studies coming out on psychic powers. Now, what are psychic powers? I believe God has designed man. Let's look at it like this. God has designed man as the crown of his creation. We wanted to look at the rulership of the universe. It would be God at top, and then mankind, and all of the universe, if you like, is connected into and imaged into the being of man. So the demonic world, in order to rule that universe, must get hold of men. And woman, in order to steal the universe, you first of all have to steal its rightful ruler under God, and that is man. And so, God has built into our beings many, many connections into the world around us, which are rulership connections. The demonic world wants man in order to take over those rulership potentials. 
Many of the things that happen in the psychic world are simply the demonic energization of potentials and powers that have been placed in man for his rulership over the universe. And what you're witnessing then is the activation by occult forces of that which God designed in man. Now, let me give you a couple of very interesting little articles here. And we'll close up at nine and send you away to pray. I have here an article taken from the New Times, which is not a mad magazine, despite the cover. New Times is quite serious intellectual magazine exploring some of the new concepts and thought forms. The cover of this particular one is called Beyond ESP, and the cover is not typical at all. It's a cartoon cover because we uh, have made a joke out of this, but the subject is quite serious inside. The caption says, Mr. President, the Russians have just psychokinetically disarmed our warheads. The president says, this is a job for super psychic. Laugh, see? The title is called Beyond ESP. And inside, it mentions the use of what they call espionage. The use of psychic powers in uh, undercover or covert operations of the military. Once the province of card readers and spoon benders, parapsychology now encompasses NISA, NASA, the CIA, and espionage. Never fear, though, the force is with all of us. And then it lists here, for instance, one man concentrating on uh, a picture of a building, and a hundred miles away, a man drawing whatever he feels is being transmitted to him and coming up with a picture like this. And experiments like this. There are people in Russia that uh, a dice is thrown and one thinks three and the other one thinks one and the dice fights like this and falls over one or the other and they strengthen each other's psychokinetic abilities. There are a whole generation of children now like Uri Geller who can bend spoons by stroking them or with their mind crush certain objects, a whole generation growing up, you are born in the middle of a psychic technological century in which all of man's potential is being stolen by the devil. And you live in the middle of it. And the Christian church is so unaware of what is happening in this area. You have never had more time or greater potential in all of the history of the world to witness about Christianity than right now. Because men starting to understand they are not machines, they are not chemicals, they are physical, mental, and spiritual beings. And everybody and their uncle is jumping on the boat showing that man is more than a machine and the Christians are standing back and going, well, maybe we are machines. Watch. The UFO experience probably summed up best by uh, the movie Close Encounters, Third Kind. And uh, it has very interesting reactions. There will be a revised version of Close Encounters coming out at the end of this year. This year, there are at least 
five major movies on science fiction with $15 million budgets coming out in September of this year. Five major movies. It has become the dominant, best-selling concept thing. Now, I want to give you a little statement by Francis Schaeffer. Technology is modern man's holy spirit. Technology is modern man's holy spirit. If that be true, then science fiction is modern man's prophecy. It is the last era of wonder he has left. What is happening to our world? We've had two different groups of people who, having departed from the Christian revelation, have been forced into two opposite camps. The thinkers, the rationalists, who think that man is nothing more than a machine. Stephen Turner, who writes for Rolling Stone magazine, but who spent three months in library and is a Christian guy, credible poet, has a little book of poems called Tonight We Will Fake Love. And each one of them picks out one of these basic non-Christian premises and pushes it to its horrible conclusion. One of them says this, My love, she said to me, when you get right down to it, we are nothing more than a machine. So I chained her to my bedroom wall for future use. And she cried. The second one goes like this. Animals, it's called. Animals. That's what they are, said the Daily Mirror and the Daily Mail. Anybody who carves his initials into epileptic children is nothing more than an animal. That's what my biology teacher told me. When we crawl from the swamp, some on two legs, some on four, People are beginning to accept it. People are beginning to act on it. Something will have to be done about this. Animal. We have one whole group of people who believe that man is nothing more than a machine. And on the top, the people who left with non-Christian premises, thinking that time and chance and matter is all that makes man being led out to this horrible conclusion, I am nothing more than a bag of chemicals reacting to my environment. Many kids did what the man did, who read somewhere that cigarette smoking causes cancer, decided to do something about it, and gave up reading. They took a jump. The jump was what Schaefer calls a leap of faith. That jump took place using sex, using drugs, using mysticism of various kinds, Sometimes it took Eastern techniques like TM. Sometimes music was used. But all of them had in common a non-rational, non-logical experience leap and gave us another group of people called, the, I call them the feelers. If you want to get technical, you can say the bottom of the rationalists and the top of the mystics. And those two people have been mutually antagonistic. These people have thought these guys are a bunch of crazies, those bunch of hippies out there meditating on their neighbors in the streets and just doing dope all the time and never doing a good day's work. And these people down calling these guys, well, they're a bunch of, you know, hard-headed rationalists, man. They have no spiritual sensibilities. They're not into the move and the flow. They're damaging our environment with technology and something will have to be done about this. And these two groups of people need each other. The thing that has separated them is that they've lost the Christian base. Christian base gave you a way to think and feel without throwing your brains out and without losing your sense of wonder. So neat. I can go and look at the stars and I can see them tonight, I think, which is a rare thing. I can look at the stars 
And I can go, somebody can say, see that star there and that star there? My father's an astronomer and he can measure the distance between those stars. And I can look and say, well, that's fun, but my father made those stars. I can keep my sense of wonder and keep my brains to it. I don't have to throw either away. Do you understand? Our culture has separated both of these. They cannot survive without each other, and yet they have been absolutely isolated. You imagine if you think you're nothing more than a machine and you kiss your girlfriend and you feel something, you have to say this is a chemical reaction. Or up here, if it's true that the only can really find meaning by throwing away all thinking, then true meaning lies in the abandonment of all reason. And we welcome to the cuckoo's nest society. That's the way it's been. What you're witnessing in your day is a synthesis for the first time in a demonic way of the experiences and the feelers together. And the things that are bringing them together are the paraphysical phenomena like the UFO experience. Men like Yella are forcing the feelers and the thinkers to come together. Technology has come to explore the mystical experiences. The mystics have moved down to technology to get scientific tools to explore the fields they're working in. And we are coming up with the fourth step, which we'll call New Law. All right. It had a little bit of an abrupt ending, but uh, that's, that's all we had on the tape, so that's all we got. Next week, though, it picks up uh, right there at the same place. So uh, come back next week for part two of the, the uh, series of the session, I guess, sessions uh, called Psychic Technology. And then we'll move on to something else. This is, again, this is the, the last of a series, uh, I think, recorded in 1979, possibly for a, a YWAM school. I know Winky had just been to um, a last day's school uh, with Keith Green. He was getting ready, as he mentioned on the beginning, he's getting ready to head out with uh, Keith for a, a week at uh, uh, Oral Roberts University. And that was a, a, a very um, memorable occasion that you can read about in Keith Green's uh, biography written by uh, his wife Melody uh, no compromise if you want to find out what happened when they went there and uh, so anyway that's it for this week uh, that's all for uh, the first part of psychic technologies see you next week <laughs>